Joshua now for a little bit. This is called a, uh, a life lived for God. Joshua chapter number four is where we're going to be today. Joshua, now last week we were in Joshua 4, 17 through 18. You guys know I love a good review, so of course we're going to have a review. Um, we discussed in those verses last week, that message was called In the Midst. And what we were looking at was after God had given his instructions to them, this is what they had actually done. They had crossed the Jordan River. Now remember the Jordan River is the border of Canaan. It's the eastern border. What it's doing is it's actually separating the wilderness, which is where they've been for 40 years, from Canaan, which is where God intended for them to be. So we've been working towards their possession of the promised land. But in that message last week, what we looked at was three different aspects. We looked, first of all, at Joshua's faithful obedience. Joshua's faithful obedience. One of the things we noticed is the fact that Joshua didn't come with an agenda. He didn't come with limitations or any kind of expectations of his service unto God. He came with a heart saying, you know what, God, in whatever you can use me, whatever way you can use me, I'm glad to be used. And what we did was we actually compared his heart of service to those throughout history, biblical and otherwise, that have been greatly used by God. Those folks that said, you know what, I'm willing to be used of the Lord. And what we found was they all had the same thing in common, the same heart of service. Just simply saying, Lord, you know what, use me. They wanted to accomplish God's will. And what we did was we contrasted their hearts with the hearts of most people today. And we compare their hearts, which is willingness to do whatever they can to accomplish God's will. And we think about our desire to accomplish God's will. And many times what happens is our will to, our desire to accomplish God's will is trumped by our desire to accomplish our will. There's our problem. Then we looked at Joshua's clarion call. And what happened was Joshua was calling the priests. They were in the midst of the Jordan River, standing at the riverbed. And he's calling them up, not only up, but he's calling them out. And what we did was compare the idea of the fact that our Joshua The Lord Jesus Christ is calling us up and out of our culture. You and I are being called up and out of who the influence of the world that we live in. And what this does is this puts a spotlight on the love of God that looks at people who are in the midst of sin and self and destruction on their own accord. And he sees them and loves them right there. It's a supernatural love of God to be willingness to take someone who is unworthy and be willing to not only to save them and redeem them, but then turn around and use that life for his glory. Then we looked at the priest's faithful response, their faithful response, the priest that responded to the call. What happened with them? Here were men who were standing in the spite of the hardship of what it was they were doing. Remember, they've been standing there all day carrying gold, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of weight. No complaints. They're standing right there in the midst of something that's very dangerous. Remember, the waters of the Jordan River are being held back. They're accomplishing what they're accomplishing because they're being faithful. And this devastating force that should crush them is being held back by God's mercy. And what we realize, the fact that these men were steadfast in doing their job, They stood their ground. And what God's calling us to do is to stand our ground. That as the the weight of judgment, God is holding back by his mercy, by his grace. He's holding back judgment upon this earth. And he's asking us to stand our ground. In Titus 1.9, it says, This holding fast, the faithful word, right? As he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, by truth, right? Both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. A gainsayer is someone who speaks against. A gainsayer is someone who's speaking against God's truth. This is people that are willing to stand in a hostile territory, of literally being right where they should be, facing off against those that would stand against God. And what we see here at this point in time, the people have crossed. 
The twelve stones have been gathered. Joshua has done what God's asked him. They've all joined together on the western bank of the Jordan. And guess what? The waters have returned. At this point in time, the Jordan River is flowing fast and hard and it's overflowing its banks. So here they stand with their back to the Jordan River, to the wilderness that's behind them. And they're facing what it is God intended for them, which is Canaan. So as we join with them this morning, this message this morning is titled, Turn the Page. Let's pray. Lord, for today, we just want to God uh, give you thanks. Lord, you are a God of amazing, amazing grace. Lord, grace is to give something that's undeserved. And Lord, we every day get more, so much more than we deserve. We know what we truly deserve. But because of your grace, we don't. And Lord, we just want to tell you today that we love you that we're thankful for your presence. And Lord, for those that are here today, Lord, for those that are online, those that are uh, being kept away because of illness or whatever's going on in their life, I do pray, Father, for your grace to rest upon them, for your presence to be real, to be strengthening. And Lord, at the same time, be challenging. God, as you spoke to me this week, and Lord, I'm just asking you, Father, just to help me to get out of the way. My desire, Lord, is not to be heard. My My desire is for, Lord, that you would be heard. Speak to our hearts, please. Get me out of the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Joshua 4 verses, 4, verses 19 and 20. It says, And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took up out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. So we first see in verse number 19 is sort of an abbreviated summary of what has taken place. Notice the first part says, And the people came up out of of Jordan. That's kind of a big synopsis of the scenario. Joshua's kind of finalizing the crossing of the Jordan and also kind of like a bookend, right? They've had the wilderness journey. That's kind of been their story for 40 years they've been in the wilderness. So what we're seeing here is this is kind of where that door or that, that cover is being closed in that book. But remember, that story started back in Exodus, Right? So as we examine this passage, it's important to understand that the children of Israel are trying to close out this portion of their lives in a place called Gilgal. Okay? And then what's important is the fact that what we're going to look at today is, first of all, the timing of it. The timing of it, first number one. After Joshua's opening phrase, closing out the wilderness era, I want you to notice that he directly ties it specifically to a date. Okay? Understand, God never does anything by mistake. Everything is specifically placed for a purpose. When you see something like that, you go, wow, why does he give that specific date? He's trying to point me to something. So let's look and see what it is he's pointing to us. That date is extremely relevant. In a couple minutes, we'll understand. But first of all, before we get there, what we see is the fact that God, we're going to set the stage. God's got a plan. So what we notice is the fact that here, in order to understand what those, that, that, the, the 10th day of the first month means, we're going to have to go back to the beginning of the wilderness journey, okay? Go back to where, where, he first, where it first began. Remember, the point of bringing them out of Egypt was to bring them into Canaan, okay? We know that. That was the whole purpose. Their story, the Israelite story, was supposed to be an 11-day journey from the time they left Egypt. Deuteronomy, 20, uh, Deuteronomy chapter number 1, verse number 2 tells us that's 11 days, Now, that's the story that's supposed to exist, but we have a 40-year detour, right, (laughs) that takes place. 11 days took 40 years. Now, understand, we know from Exodus chapter number 3 that Canaan was always God's plan. Way back there at the burning bush, he says, hey, this is where you're going. 
But we also know from Joshua chapter number one, once Joshua's taken lead and once he's taken over, God tells him, hey, you know what? The same way that you left and you came out of Egypt is the way that you're going to go in to Canaan. Now, what brought them out was their willingness to trust God and to follow God's plans. God had instructions for them. He told them exactly what they do, what to do. They followed through, and guess what? God did his part. They did theirs, and boom, next thing you know, God brings them out. He delivers them right out of Egypt. The problem is their struggle, once they had trusted God and followed his instructions, is once they got in the wilderness, they stopped doing that. They stopped trusting God, and they stopped following his instructions. So what happens is now they find themselves in this story within a story. What should have been an 11-day little mini-series, guess what, becomes a 40-year saga because of their struggle to listen. He kept telling them again and again, stiff-necked, 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 stubborn, stubborn. How many of us can fall into that category sometime in our lives? Amen. Every hand goes up. Praise the Lord. (laughs) So I'm not the only one. But it's not until they learn to follow God and to trust God that they find themselves standing in Canaan, right? So we understand that the way out was the, was the way in. So what we know is the fact that their exit out of Egypt and their entrance into Canaan are inexorably attached. There is a super, super important aspect of that. So with that understanding that the exit and the entrance are tied together, let's go back and look at verse 19. And the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, I know that you guys, because of our extensive study of the book of Exodus, we spent almost two years in Exodus, and I know you guys listened so hard and paid such close attention that I'm going to, the dates that are relevant to them coming out, you guys already know them, right? I don't need to say anything, but just for my sake, we're going to do a little bit of a review just so that you guys know that I understand what's going on. Exodus chapter number 12. So way back here in Exodus chapter number 12, what's taking place in this time is like this is right before the 10th plague. Okay, God's going to bring death into Egypt. And what's going to do through that 10th plague? He's going to free the Israelites. We understand this is where the Passover is going to be established. This is the final plague. What happens during the Passover is the fact that the, God brings death into Egypt. And what happened was all those that had sacrificed a lamb and taken that blood and painted it over the lintel and the post of the door, the death, death would come to that house and it would pass over Their home, that's where the Passover comes from. So it's a picture of deliverance. It's pointing to the fact that you and I are delivered through the blood of the Lamb, right? Pointing to our future. And I know because you guys know Jewish history, you know the day of the Passover, right, everybody? Duh. But we'll just look in the Bible just to make sure. It says Exodus 12, 6. It says, And you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So the 14th day, we see that's extremely relevant. That's the Passover. That one stands out. It's the first month, the 14th day is the Passover. But that's not what our scripture says. Our scripture says the 10th day. What's relevant about the 10th day? We know that the, that the wilderness story begins with the Passover. It starts on the 14th day. Now, in literature, there's something called a prologue. A prologue. That's kind of an introduction to the story. It sort of sets the stage of what's to come. And what we find here is the fact that this prologue is setting the stage. Exodus chapter number 12. Notice this in Exodus 12, 2. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Verse 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation, saying in the tenth day of this month, notice this, the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Okay? 
So in setting the stage for what's to follow, they're to select their lamb. Their instructions here, this is the prologue of the story. They're supposed to make a choice. They're selecting their lamb before their story can truly get started. So what we see here is the fact that the Passover will mark the beginning, but this leading up to it. This is the introduction. This is the prologue to the story. And the Passover is going to be what God is going to use to bring them out Right? Exodus 14 or 12 verses 41 through 42. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, their captivity. You and I were lost in sin in our captivity unto a, a taskmaster named Satan. They had Pharaoh. We have Satan back here in this world of sin, Egypt. Even the self same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt on the 14th. So here we are, man, a picture of our salvation, a picture right here on this day. They are brought out. Then they enter into the wilderness and their story Begins, verse 42 says this, It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord from beginning, from bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. So with the understanding of the beginning here, the wilderness story starting here with the prologue, where verse 10, where we know on the 10th they're to make their selection, let's look at the, the epilogue. This is at the end of the story as you wrap things up. Listen to this, verse 19 where we were earlier. And the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. What this is telling us is that the instructions that we heard about the lamb, the story ends on the 14th. On the 10th day, we've entered the epilogue where we're closing out the story. What they were supposed to do is they were supposed to select a lamb. That was going to be the introduction of the story, but here we're closing out the story. And what we're finding is it's based upon the fact that there has to be a moment of consecration and sanctification with the people. And I'll get to that in just a minute. So first of all, we look at the timing. It's a severe, it's incredibly important why it's the 10th and the 10th. But then let's look at the location, the location, where they are. And it says, an encamped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Now, we don't know exactly where Jericho is. I have a picture I'm going to show you guys where it is, where we believe it is. So we can see where the Jordan River is here. We believe Gilgal is somewhere right over here, just over beside Jericho, based upon the description that we have in, in the Bible. But why does God choose Gilgal as their location? Why is this? Understand, this is going to be the base of operations. The entire conquest is going to be based out of Gilgal. First, notice the fact that this appears to be an uninhabited area. When they go there, it says they encamp. They didn't go there and have to fight anybody. They just went and set up camp. So what we understand is the fact that there's not a community here. It's not a town or something like that. And the only that it's actually just an open plain. And we also know that because in Joshua chapter number five, this is the way that God describes where they are. He says that it is the plains of Jericho. So basically Gilgal, which we see the name being used here. Understand, at this point in time, it does not have a name, okay? This is a place of rest for them. But understand, Joshua is writing this. Remember, the book of Joshua is written in retrospect. So though he's using the name now in verse 19 in chapter number 4, the name isn't actually given until chapter 5, verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 5, it says this, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. And because of that, wherefore... The name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So it's named there in chapter number five. But what we find is the fact that based upon this verse, what it's telling us is there is some issue of sanctification and consecration that has been keeping them in reproach with the Lord. This is while they're in Canaan. Understand, they're in the promised land, but yet there's still an issue that has now been addressed. 
What this is telling us is that they are physically in Canaan, even though they're physically where it is they're supposed to be, their heart wasn't quite where it needed to be. There was still a part of them that was still attached to the wilderness. God wants to separate them from that to close that story. Remember in 419, this is part of the epilogue, the 10th day heading towards the 14th day. And when they reach Gilgal, what's interesting is the fact that they're not wholly consecrated unto God yet. Notice in Joshua chapter 5, okay, we're going to find out what's going on. It says, at that time, the Lord said unto, unto Joshua, make thee sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now, if you know what circumcision is, you're like, hey, now what? <laughs> A second circumcision? Isn't one enough? Right? If you're not familiar with what circumcision is, I'm not going to get into it today. Go look it up when we get off the internet. When you can go look it up on the internet. If you're a parent, a child, ask your parents. Let them explain it to you. Let me just suffice it to say, it's when a really sharp knife comes in contact with a very delicate place. Okay? But there's it's an issue of, of cutting away. That's what's relevant here. Joshua 5 continues. He says this, And Joshua, Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskin. Okay, so how do you get circumcised, circumcised a second time? He's going to tell us what this actually means. It says, and this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. Okay, he's going to say, I'm going to explain what I meant by a second circumcision. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Remember that whole generation had to die off, right? 300 and, uh, what's that, 300 and, uh, or 603,548 men died in the wilderness, right? Of those men, what we're going to find out is, and it says here, and this, and it says, now all the people that came out were circumcised. So all that generation, they had all been circumcised, and now they're dead. But listen, but all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them, they had not circumcised. So that younger generation had never been circumcised. So what we find here is now on the 10th day, what's going to happen is as they arrive to Gilgal, they're going to get that taken care of. Now, verse number nine, where we were before, it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. So the fact that they were not circumcised was a reproach between them and God. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal. So this is a place where God is reforming or, or correcting them. Verse 10 says this, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. So the 10th, they came out, they got circumcised on the 10th, and here we are, 14, on the 14th, four days later, they're going to close their wilderness story. You see, Gilgal wasn't significant because of where it was or because of what it, what it offered to them. It was important and significant because of what took place there. The children of Israel took a last step of obedience. They sanctified themselves. They honored the agreement that had been made with their forefather Abraham with God. Back in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 11, it says, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. Talking of these young people. This is my covenant, which shall, ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token, a sign of the covenant betwixt me, betwixt me and you. And I apologize up front for all of the circumcision talk. <laughs> wasn't something I wanted to talk about, but it's just throughout this whole thing. But what does it do for us? It simply shows us that as God is closing their wilderness story based upon the faithfulness of the Israelites to do their part. 
You see, his whole thing is God wants to turn the page in their lives. They've been in the wilderness long enough. And you know what works out really cool is the fact that on the 14th day of the first month, that makes it exactly 40 years to the day that God brought them out. Their story is exactly 40 years. And can I tell you that God right now in our lives, in humanity's life, God wants to give us a new story. He wants people to walk with him. Understand, if you have never really walked with God, there are a lot of Christians that really never have. They may have gotten saved, but that really, that was kind of the end of it for them. But let's say you've never walked with God, or let's say you did at one point in time, but now you've, you've chosen to walk away. Just know that God is reaching out to you. He wants to change your story. Amen. You're not supposed to live in a wilderness story. We're supposed to be a story of forgiveness and restoration and redemption. That's the whole Amen. point. Amen. That's why we're here. God wants us to live a life of holiness that's sanctified from this sinful world. We're supposed to be set apart, circumcised from the world, right? That's what's being pictured here. And so living life, instead of living a life that's plagued with regret, God wants us to live a life of victory that not only brings hope to our life, but hope to others. People see us. And they see what God's done, and it gives them hope. And what we find is the fact that God would not close their story until they were obedient. They had to choose to submit to be circumcised. The very same way their story did not begin until they made a choice, right? Day 10, they made the choice to select the lamb that they would follow through what God told them to do. And on the 10th day, they will submit to this circumcision to close their story. Ultimately, it's up to them. Their wilderness was up to them. God could bring them out, but they had to submit. And can I just tell you, man, God wants to close the regretful chapters of our lives. Amen. If we're in the midst of it, man, he's ready to close it. He's ready to bring us out. But see, we have to sever our ties from this sinful world, repent of our sin, turn our hearts to God and be sanctified and be obedient. See, the Bible references it as a, as the circumcision of Christ. In Colossians chapter two, verse 11, it says, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual circumcision. This is a spiritual division separation in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's what God's trying to do. Last week, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. We were in verses 14 through 18. And what we did is we asked ourselves some questions as Paul's challenging us, right? Are we asked ourselves, are we in fellowship with the world, right? Am I in constant friendship with the world and its influences? Am I in communion with the world? Meaning I want to spend time, I'm going to take time to set myself times that I can meet with the world. He asked if we were in concord with the world, meaning are we in harmony with the world? Am I good with everything that the world represents? And we ask ourselves, listen, or do we have a part of our life that we're set aside for the world? Are we in agreement with the world? We ask ourselves these questions, man. If the answer is yes to any of them, man, we got a problem. Because listen, God loves us. He's saying, look, if you can get away from those things, cut yourself away from that stuff, separate yourself from it. Guess what? I have something for you. He continued in verse 16, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, 
I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Cut yourself off from this world, and I will receive you. But the problem is, if you still attach to the world, guess what? I will not receive you. You want to close that chapter in your life, but you're trying to hold on to the world? It's not going to happen. He says, you've got to cut yourself away. And he says, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Amen. That's the end of chapter 6. But guess what? Chapter 7. Number one, first verse, guess what? He continues talking about the same thing. Look what he says here. Having therefore these promises, what you just heard, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. And you know what God showed me this week, which I've read that verse thousands of times. It says filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Filthiness of the spirit. We're filthy of the flesh, yes. Because guess what happens with us? Boy, we embrace the world and we dip ourselves headlong into its indulgences and we get that stuff all over us. We get caught up in the world. But spiritually, what happens with us is we are, we are inconsistent. We allow our affections to go upon the things of the world instead of God and we put those things in front of Him. It's spiritual infidelity. God references it in James 4.4. 4. He says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. It's not talking about physical adultery. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He says, when you attach yourself to the world, you are cheating on me. You are being being an adulterer or an adulteress. So we understand this. Is there, if this is where you and I are coming from, if that's where you are in your life right now, and you go, look, you know what, that's describing me. Today's not about beating anybody up. That's not what this is about. This is about taking people that are in the midst who are struggling and turning them to a loving God Amen. who is ready, willing, and able to change their life. Hallelujah. You remember how he described himself as a father unto us? Mm. That's what he wants to be. That Romans 7, that 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having therefore these promises. He's there for us. He's ready. He's willing. He's able. Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness. Hear that? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Understand, we don't cleanse ourselves through our efforts or through our self-will or our our, our strength or our willpower or our determination. We don't do it that way. Okay, I'm not going to sin. 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 Guess what? You are going to sin. It's just a matter of time because your will is going to give out. What happens is we think we're in a situation where I've got to deny myself, deny myself, deny myself. And it's my will. I'm going to not do these things. And that's not the solution. All you're doing is just, uh, what's the word I'm saying? You're putting it off. What's the word? It's like the, the pro- what is it? Procrastinate. Not at all. That's close, but no. <laughs> you're, you're, we're putting it off. I can't remember what you're saying. You're delaying. It's a delay. That's the word. Sorry. <laughs> we're delaying the inevitable. Because understand, if I'm not going to sin, 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 I'm not going to sin. And on that day when I'm weak, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to sin. It's not about us. This is the struggle that we deal with every single day. See, what it is, it's not not about that. It's about us allowing ourselves to to let go and surrender. When we surrender to God and He works in our life. Well, then it no longer has the the control over it used to have. It no longer is luring me. 
We're cleansing ourselves because we're turning our hearts to God. I want to live holy, man. I don't have a desire to look like the world. It makes me sick to look like the world. I don't want to be attached to that place. I cut myself away from it. Understand what he's telling us. is the fact that we're to be cleansed. And what God tells us is he tells us how he cleanses us. Listen to this in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. As I told you in Ephesians 5, you're going to hear all the roles of a husband and wife. But they're all being given as examples of, yes, how we should live. But he's comparing it and contrasting it with the church and him. Listen, 525, husbands love your wives even as, remember I told you the most important words in the Bible, as and like, even as Christ also loved the church, this is your example, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify the church and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The word of God is what cleanses us. It's not our willpower. So it's not just about surrendering our desires to God, but it's about surrendering our lives. God, use me as an instrument for your glory. And listen, man, if you're struggling with that today, can I just tell you that he's waiting on you? God is ready, willing, and able to heal us. He has the ability to take us and give us a new chapter, to give us a whole new story, to take us out of our wilderness and place us in a place where we're walking with him in a place that's flowing with milk and honey. You see, what made Gilgal special had nothing to do with its location, but what happened there. And then lastly, let's look at the purpose. The purpose. Verse 20 says this, And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. So Gilgal, first of all, understand, this is their first real home. This is where they're going to pitch for the very first time. When they sleep in Canaan, this is the first place they're going to do it. This is also the place where the people got right with God. They got consecrated and became obedient unto His will completely. It would be the place where God would have them keep the, take the Passover. They're going to honor the Lord in this place. So this was the, their, this was, uh, which was their, the, the whole aspect of the beginning of their story. The wilderness story beginning with the Passover. And what's happening here? We're reaching the end of that story, right? So what we're talking about here is the fact that this memorial is going to be built. The more, remember the 12 stones that they gathered. There would be 12 stones that would be representative of the 12 tribes. This memorial is going to be a marker, a symbol, a a, a memorial that will speak of God's great goodness. It's supposed to tell of the great miraculous power of God. As they'll say, we'll see in the verses to come, when your kids ask you what this is all about, man, this is where God did the impossible. And we look at this and we go, wow, okay. Now, each of these stones represent people. So then we ask ourselves, well, why would God make a memorial of his great power out of stones that represent people? That doesn't make sense because we're not good. We're not good at all. Amen. We're a mess. We're not an example of God's great goodness. We're an example of human failure. And what happens is we look at this and we go, why would God choose to make this memorial unto himself out of stones that represent people that are flawed and failed and filled with self-will? People that struggle with their sin, their fear, their doubt, their unbelief, their inconsistency, their disbelief. And we think about this and we go, wow, why would he do such a thing? Making a perfect memorial out of such imperfect people. And you see, if we ask ourselves, doesn't God work in people every single day? Doesn't he? Doesn't God specialize in restoration? (laughs) Isn't that his greatest gift to humanity that he's willing to restore us? Think about this church. What does it say on the sign? A place of restoration. 
My wife and I were restored in this place. And most of us here Amen. could say, you know what? God has done a work of restoration in my life. Amen. And wasn't it amazing that God would do these incredible things, taking people that at some point in their lives were off course, Amen. off track, right? And we can look back in our history and the traits that we described of those Israelite people, we could attach them to ourselves, disobedient, in sin, disbelief, riotous, all the issues of the flesh that we unfortunately lived in. And here's this memorial of God's great power made out of these imperfect beings. But you see what's so cool about it? When we were in, De in Deuteronomy chapter 27, we heard that the stones that God was going to use, guess what he was going to do? He was going to have them write the law of God on the stones. And what's interesting is if you go to the book of Romans chapter 2, Verses 14 and 15, it says, For when the Gentiles, these are people who have not the law, these are outside of the Jewish culture, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These people literally keep the law, but they don't even know what the law is. They're keeping it. Having not the law are a law unto themselves. Verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, listen, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. Humanity holds itself accountable by a law that's written on their heart that they don't even understand. The conscience that we're born with that teaches us what morality is, is the law of God written in our DNA. God created us and we know right from wrong. I don't care where you go. If there's an aborigine in a tent... And I'm, I'm one aborigine over here, and there's an aborigine over here. And this aborigine sneaks over and just grabs this guy's pillow and walks out. Guess what? He knows it ain't right. He isn't like, oh, okay. He's like, psh, 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 psh. he sneaks. Right. I don't care where you go in the world. People know right from wrong because it's written on their hearts. And then, so we talk about here are stones that have got God's law written on them. And then guess what? God also amazingly, by coincidence, I'm sure, happens to call and describe humanity as stones. 1 Peter 2.5. Ye, all, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Here we have stones representing human beings with the law of God written on them, being assembled into a memorial of God's great power, closing the chapter of the wilderness. So notice, and also notice the fact that this assembly... This memorial is attributed to Joshua. Notice in verse number 20, it says this, And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. Now we know because we've studied this in Joshua that those stones were not gathered by Joshua. They were gathered by 12 specific men that went and gathered those stones and carried them all the way back to Gilgal. So this is not a one-man job, yet that's the way it's talked about, as if Joshua did it himself. Interesting. Is it possible that God's picturing something for us? Notice in Joshua, in Romans chapter number 12, verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, all members have not the same office. We're individuals. So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. Individual stones combining to make a single memorial. Ephesians 4, 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body, singular, unto the edifying of itself in love. 
many parts, many individuals coming together to make a singular. He was, we as individual believers make up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. So is it possible that the memorial unto God's great power is actually picturing the church, picturing us as believers, as a memorial of God's goodness at work, as individual as well as collectively, here we are. When surrendered to God, what happens? We become a memorial of the miraculous power of God working in our lives, a story of restoration. When you share your testimony, guess what you're doing? This is what God did. This is what I brought to the party. I was a mess. But God. But God, in His miraculous power, He did this. And what happens is then it's displayed to the world how God took someone who is worthless and a write-off in the eyes of people and the eyes of the world and make that person a powerful instrument of His love, redeeming a person who's committed and, and, and filled with sin and making them holy and righteous through the power of God. He does this through reconciling people unto Himself. He brings them unto Himself turning the page in their lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 18. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Turning the page. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Your life is now an instrument. And once he's done this miraculous work of reconciliation, restoration, and redemption, what happens is the life of the believer becomes a billboard of the goodness of God. Someone who knew you before, someone you haven't seen in years, who knew you in the midst of your lowest point, and here you are redeemed and restored. You're living your life, and suddenly they come across you, and they're like, wow, what happened to you? How many of us experience that? Isn't that awesome? And we don't go, man, you know what? Turns out I just had to work on me. A few self-help books, a little self-searching, working out of the gym a little bit, changed my diet. I turned turned out to be pretty amazing. No. You know what happened to me? I was on my way to destruction. And God stepped in. And he changed my life. And I am what I am today, not because I'm anything special, but because God is good. And he receives glory, a memorial unto God. And what happens here that's intended to give God glory of his miraculous work. And what it does is it gives hope to the hopeless as our life displays the power of the Lord. But there's one more purpose I want to touch on as we wrap up. So we've entered into this epilogue of the wilderness story, okay? It's important for us to remember what the purpose of the wilderness was, okay? The purpose of the wilderness, there was a reason for it. Now, it was only supposed to be 11 days, but it ended up being 40 years. Recognize the fact that the ultimate purpose of this journey, this 40 years, was not to get them out of Egypt, right? It wasn't to get them out of Egypt. That was 11 days. The 40 years was to get the Egypt out of them, Right? All the things of Egypt that they could not let go. They could not sever themselves, circumcise themselves from the world. They brought it with them. And every time they got in a struggle, they said, you know what? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. It happens time and time and time again. And it's finally when this generation says, you know what? We're not going back to Egypt. We're going to Canaan. It's the heart change 
was the key. And what we recognize the fact here, that was the purpose. Can I just tell you that if you're in your wilderness today, the sooner you let that wilderness do its perfect work in you, the sooner you can come out of it. James describes it this way in James 1 verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. That does not sound like something we should be celebrating. Falling into diverse temptations. That means a very hard time. We might call it this, a wilderness, right? We might find it, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into the wilderness. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. That wilderness has got a purpose. It's working in you. Do you think, Kobe and I were talking about this on Thursday. Do you think it's coincidental that Jesus was drawn to the wilderness for 40 days and he was tempted? No. It's showing us how it should go. He turned to God and turned to God and turned to God. The problem was they would not turn to God. They kept turning to their flesh and it kept them in the wilderness. They came out when they finally turned to him. Recognize the fact that, listen, we're all going to experience our wilderness at some level. And we're going to deal with our flesh, our past, our fears, and our failures. The issue is this. Are we in the prologue of our story? our wilderness story where we're just getting started. We're just getting into the wilderness. Or are we in the midst of our wilderness? Are we struggling with the sins of the flesh, struggling to let go of the world while we're in the midst? Or, man, are we in the, in the epilogue, the close of our wilderness story where we're humbly submitting to God and helping to give our hearts to him so that he can turn the page. Listen, man, 40 years, 40 days, 40 hours, it'll last as long as we want to do it our way. There are Christians that have been in the wilderness for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, because they're a Christian by title who's holding on to the world, unwilling to cut that tie. Because understand, God would not close the wilderness story until they let go of Egypt completely. If you're holding on to Egypt, man, you're going to be in the wilderness for a very long time. Amen. Oh, man. Amen. The question is this. If God wants to close that chapter in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, will we let go And let God. He'll bring you out if you just let him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, for the gift of the word of God. Thank you for the incredible depth that you've written into the scripture and the way that you've shown us so much today. I do thank you so much for speaking to my heart. If no one else got anything out of it, Lord, I know that you've spoken to me. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, look, Pastor, I'm in the wilderness. Right now I'm struggling with some issues in my life and I want to change. I want to close that chapter in my life. I want to get out of the wilderness and into the promised land. But there's some things I need to deal with. There's a couple things I need to bring before the Lord. 
He's ready, willing, and able to bring you out. You just have to be willing to turn to him. I would ask you, give your hearts to him. Address those issues in your life. If God spoke to you, deal with it today. Don't wait another day. Get out of the wilderness today. With their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today, you're online with us. And you say, look, you know what? I don't even know where I stand with God. I don't know if I'm in the wilderness. I don't know where I am. Listen, guys, 20 some years ago, almost 20 years ago, someone asked me a question. They said, if you died today, are you sure you're going to go to heaven? And I searched my heart and honestly said, I just don't know. I hope so. I was based on being a good person because it's all I knew. I wasn't raised in church. But thankfully, they took the Bible and showed me that without Christ, I was going to pay the price for my sin. But because he loved me, he'd gone to the cross and he'd pay the sin debt of the world. And it was that willingness to receive the gift of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, who took the sins of the world, who died on that cross, went to a borrowed tomb and then resurrected on the third day. Victory over death. If you've never received him, if you've never accepted that gift, it's yours to receive today. You can start heading in the right direction and establish a new story today. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what? I want to receive Christ. I know you're calling me God. I just want to respond. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a ceremony. It's just a matter of the heart. I'm going to lead you in prayer. But again, it's not the words that will do anything for you. It's the matter of your heart being willing to receive the gift. So if he's calling your heart, I'm going to lead you in prayer. I'm going to speak out loud. You can speak in your heart and your mind. If you're online, you can pray out loud. It doesn't matter. It's between you and God. But if you'll pray this prayer and you'll mean it and you're sincere, God will do a work in your heart and he'll redeem you. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I am so sorry for my sin. I'm either stuck in Egypt, consumed with sin, with sin because I've never come to you. Lord, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for my failure. I'm sorry for my disobedience to you. Jesus' name.